I take the case where a monkey's stealing something that I had behind me, the idea is the monkey's thinking, aha, she doesn't have the same facts that I have, and I can exploit that, I can rip her off. What we're now learning is that it doesn't seem like the monkeys can represent what it means for a person to be ignorant. In fact, when you use some special procedures, it seems like the monkeys are not detecting what it means for somebody to be ignorant. They actually don't know what this means. How do we test whether or not the monkeys know what it means to be ignorant? Well, we do exactly the same sort of test with hiding, asking the monkeys their expectations when I'm hiding objects in a box, except we do it in a slightly different way. We make what the monkeys know about the world to be a little bit different than the person who's in the play. And so imagine a scenario like this, you're the monkey you're watching, I hide an object uh, inside a box, and when I'm not paying attention, something happens. So the object moves outside the box and then maybe goes back in. And the question is, I've missed this fact about the world. I've missed the fact that the world has changed a bit. Um, do you, the monkey, make an expectation about what I'm going to do? Well, if you were a human, you would say, well, you know, I know that she didn't see this object go back in the box, but that's where she believed it to be before. Those are the facts that she privately has. She missed this information that I have, but I should be able to make a correct prediction. The funny thing that we find is that in that case, the monkeys don't make a correct prediction about what to do. So if they are, if you're the monkey and you're watching, you see me hide an object in a box, I'm not paying attention, it comes out and goes back in, you or the monkey actually make no prediction about what I'm going to do. It's as though as soon as the, my facts of the world have changed, you throw out all information about what's going on. And so using studies like this, what we're realizing is that the monkeys seem to just think about the world in a really different way than we do. If they share the same information with people, if their facts are another person's facts, they're very good at making predictions about what that person's going to do. They're very good at interacting with that person. They steal when they're supposed to. They're good at Machiavellian interactions. But when a, another individual's facts are wrong or differ from the things that the monkey himself has seen, it seems like rather than making the kind of prediction humans would make, monkeys seem to make no predictions. It's as though the full representation they have about the facts of the world are built on their own, their own version of the world, and as soon as that changes, they can't do anything. This idea that the monkeys can't represent ignorance, they're kind of bound to facts, has had big implications for how animals think about their minds. Um, it means that animals don't think about minds in the same way that we do. I think it also tells us something really important about how we represent the world or how we're built to represent the world. It suggests that the really basic way that we're tracking what other people think and what other people know might be through this very factive system. In fact, it might be through like thinking about the facts of the world. That's the easy way we do it. And then when we think in these complicated ways that we as humans do, we take other people's perspective and so on, that requires something else on top of it, something else that's different. And so I think this stuff is important because it's, it's telling us the basic way we make sense of the world. And, and that might have important implications for all kinds of funny things like how we make quick, fast moral judgments, how our communication works. Um, in fact, we have a, a cool paper in my lab uh, in the works now with uh, Josh Nob and his awesome student, Jonathan Phillips, thinking about if, if we're built evolutionarily to think just about the facts of the world, that's the basic system that monkeys have and that we share with monkeys. What does that really mean in terms of thinking about cognitive, human cognitive science more broadly? What does that basic thing mean about the way we make sense of the world? But I think the fact that, I think, I think that we think in terms of facts and that we're different from animals in that respect seems to have another different implication, not just how we think about other minds, but how we're affected by other minds. And this is the stuff we've been most interested in. 
if we're the only species that's not bound to our own perspective, does that mean that we're differentially affected by other people's perspectives in ways we don't expect? Um, we know other animals can be affected by other individuals' perspectives. Um, in fact, there's lots of cases, super simple cases in the animal kingdom of being affected by what other individuals are doing, right? Like think of the classic case of schooling fish. Like if I took an individual fish from one species and plopped it down into a school of other fish that were moving in certain ways, that individual fish would start moving in exactly those same sorts of ways. And so we see cases like this of behavioral contagion in lots of species. And that's neat because it's just a dumb mechanism that other species have to like get into sync with other individuals behaviorally. Um, humans, of course, have this mechanism too. Uh, it's the thing that my colleague John Barge calls the chameleon effect. Um, subtly, as you're watching this video, if I'm starting to sit this way, you might not realize it, but you would be moving perhaps in certain ways that I would do. Um, and we know uh, from lots of work from John's lab and others' labs um, that people are spontaneously copying the sorts of behaviors they see in others. So this is a mechanism that you see in animals. It's a mechanism you see in us. And it's neat because it's a powerful way to get into behavioral sync with other individuals, which also leads to getting into a bit of emotional sync with other individuals too. It means that like, if I'm kind of making a very furrowed sad face or making a really happy face, those kinds of behaviors that I'm doing, if you're copying them, you might be taking on the kinds of emotions that happen too. And it turns out that this happens all the time. You know, if I were to start yawning in this video, you know, all of a sudden my you know, talk would start to seem boring, this interview would seem really boring because you would start yawning too and have the emotions associated with it. Um, if I was laughing a lot in the video, ha ha ha, like all of a sudden things would start seeming funny to you because you'd be copying these behaviors of laughter too. Um, this is why even really, really unfunny sitcoms can seem super funny when they have a laugh track. Like just implicitly in the background, hearing people laughing makes you kind of laugh a little bit too and that allows you to have this contagion of emotions. Why is this stuff relevant? Well, lots and lots of species have this same form of contagion. They have a way to get their emotions into the head of another individual through these simple behaviors, right? Just as fish and lots of species have behavioral contagion, so too are we learning that other species have lots of emotional contagion. So you can think, see things like yawning contagion in chimpanzees. You can see like yawning contagion in dogs, where if you, they see another individual yawning, they're gonna yawn too. You even see things like laughter contagion in chimpanzees. Um, if you look at videos of chimpanzees who, chimp, chimps laugh, in case for those that don't know, they do this kind of <laughs> sort of behavior. And if you watch tracks of chimps who are interacting with one another, when they see one individual laugh, they are statistically more likely to laugh themselves. So there should be a nice market for terrible laugh tracks in chimpanzees too. Some, somebody, some, some bad sitcom can exploit this. But, but the point of this is that there are old, old mechanisms for having the stuff the content that's in other people's heads get into your head. But all of those are based on the facts of the world. They're based on things that you can see. They're based on my behaviors. I'm yawning. I'm moving in a certain way. You're copying that. They're not based on the, the, the kinds of mental contagion that might be more interesting. How do I get my beliefs into your head? How do I get my ideas into your head? Those kinds of things, those types of contagion might be unique to humans. If other animals can't ever get outside the, their own facts that they have, how can they take on the kinds of ideas that other individuals have? And what we're learning is that there are a few cases where humans seem to be special in terms of taking on other people's ideas, but that specialness is kind of evolutionarily new in a way that might not be so good. It's kind of like in beta testing. 
it, it works in a way that preys on these very, very new systems, systems we don't share with primates, and they kind of might be a little glitchy. So one of the glitches we've been studying um, is a glitch that comes from taking on other people's perspectives when you're not supposed to do that, um, when we explicitly tell you, for example, not to do that. And so here's the task. Imagine uh, your task is I'm going to flash a bunch of uh, circles behind my head as we're watching this video, and your task is just to, as quickly as possible, say the number of circles that are there, right? You assume, you know, this is a kind of task, boring task that vision scientists make undergrads do all the time. People are good at detecting the number of dots that are flashed. Um, but imagine, incidentally, if I just happen to still be in the frame as we do this sort of setup, you know, I'm flashing these dots in the video, and I just happen to be here, and I just happen to be looking at some dots and not others. So if you were to flash two dots, Maybe I, you know, these my hands are the two dots. You know, maybe one is over here and I'm seeing it and one is not, right? That is relevant for your task, but it turns out that doing this, having it be that there's a person with a perspective that's different from your own in this situation, it actually affects how quickly you answer that question. So you're slower and um, more error prone to say that you see two objects in a scene where I'm actually seeing one. My perspective is automatically affecting yours. Um, this is some work that Ian Apperley and his colleagues um, had done a few years ago. And there's been a lot of folks following up on it to show that this seems to be not just a super boring um, way of taking other people's perspective. It's not, it's not just cool in that um, it's a, a form of us taking on other people's perspectives when we're not supposed to. It seems to be interestingly bound to whose perspective you have to take on or whose perspective you're not supposed to take on. Um, my student, uh, Lindsay Drayton, in collaboration with Yaro Dunham and I have been doing a study to try to see whether or not that person who's in this frame actually affects whether or not you show this effect. So imagine it's not me in this frame, but it's a person that you know super well, you know, a good friend of yours, or a person you see as in-group. Maybe it's a person who's the same race as you or a different race. It turns out we're finding that a lot of these same things seem to matter for this effect. If you test white participants with a white avatar, they automatically take on the perspective of the white avatar. So they're much slower to say that they see two objects when the white avatar is seeing one. But if you test white participants and you show them a black avatar, all of a sudden that effect goes away. And so the amazing thing is it's not, it's not some dumb thing about the visual system. It's our mind and the mechanisms we're using to take on other people's perspectives. But we're doing it automatically and under the hood and in ways that we don't realize. And at least in this case, it's a case where it messes us up. That dot task is a you know is, is the kind of task where you're like okay fine we get messed up in that task but this is just a dumb trick of cognitive science we wouldn't really get messed up by other people's perspective in the real world but it turns out that just in the past couple of years there are a couple of cases where we see people getting messed up by other people's perspective um, in situations that really matter and so one situation that matters uh, is in the context of problem solving so. I give you a problem, you have to come up with your own ideas about how to solve it. We're really smart humans with causal understanding, we're pretty good at this. But what if I put you in a situation where before you get to tackle the problem yourself, you watch somebody solve the problem and they solve it in a really inefficient way. They solve it in a way that's causally implausible and so on. Turns out if you do that kind of study with either human kids, like four-year-old human kids or even adult humans, what you find is that watching somebody else solve a problem badly messes up the extent to which you can find the correct solution, even if ahead of time you would have done it perfectly on your own. 
this is a phenomena that researchers have called over imitation. It's like a phenomena where you imitate too much, right? This is a case where you're not supposed to be copying somebody's idea, but just seeing them solve it, just witnessing their idea is messing up your own representation of how to solve this task. Um, my, my colleagues at Yale, uh, the student Derek Lyons and Professor Frank Kyle, have been studying this phenomenon of over imitation, um, particularly in kids. And what Derek finds is that not only do kids mess up their solution when they see somebody solve something inefficiently, it messes up their causal understanding of the problem. You can interview kids later and ask, you know, if you did some dumb thing to solve the box, did you have to do that? And kids will spin a story, not just about how they have to do it, about, but why that is causally relevant, like it's changed their causal understanding of the box to see something do something in a dumb way. I think this phenomenon of over-imitation is related to the fact that we're so good at jumping out of the facts of the world and taking on other people's perspective. This is a, a new evolutionary development, and it means that we haven't really beta-tested the mechanisms that we have for jumping into someone else's perspective. And what we're finding is that they're much more pervasive than we think much more fluid than we think. Even when we don't think other people's ideas are affecting us, they seem to be. The neat thing is that just in the past few weeks, we are, uh, have published a recent paper trying to look at whether other animals show these effects of over-imitation. Do they also get messed up by the perspectives of others? Now, you might think that they do, right? They're really bad at causal learning, or much worse at causal learning than, say, we are. Um, are they going to fall prey to other people's bad strategies? Well, it turns out that both in chimpanzees and in the context of our lab in domesticated dogs, you find that other animals do not get messed up by the bad solutions of other people. You can test chimpanzees and dogs on exactly that same problem-solving task as you give humans and human children. And what you find is that they can watch somebody solve it really inefficiently, and then they'll just go back to their own solution and figure it out on their own. Um, this means that other animals, in part because they may be bound to their own facts of the world, they're not messed up by the perspectives of others, but that gives them kind of a leg up. That like They don't have this easy mechanism to get the kind of contents of other people's minds, but that also means when the contents of other people's minds are bad, they don't get messed up by that. Um, this is a case where not being bound to the facts affect, uh, affects us in our real behaviors in the world and how we problem solve. But I think there's evidence more broadly in social psychology that we're getting affected by other people. I think there's evidence in social psychology more broadly that we're getting affected by other people's representations of the world, even in contexts that like really matter, like beyond problem solving, like our real world behaviors and even our moral behaviors. Um, and by this, I'm thinking of uh, some of the kind of classic work by Bob Cialdini and his colleagues in which he shows that merely hearing that other people are doing something and behaving in certain ways causes us to behave in those ways, even if ahead of time we would have said that that was a morally bad thing to do. And so Cialdini has a, a, a classic case that he himself lived when he was um, visiting the petrified forest in Arizona. Um, and uh, a, a, around the forest, there are lots of signs saying, you know, every year, you know, millions of people steal you know, pieces of the petrified forest and it destroys the forest. Please don't do that. And based on Cialdini's work in social psychology, he realized that this is a really bad sign to have, right? If people are affected by the kinds of behaviors that other people are showing and the ideas that other people are having, then they might then end up contagiously taking on these behaviors that you're trying to get people not to take on. And so Cialdini said, this is really terrible. Let's put up, let's do a study, put up this sign, and then put up a different sign that conveys the same message but doesn't have any bad behaviors that could contagiously affect the people who are walking around the forest. 
So we put up a sign that says, lots of people are doing this and it's really bad, don't do it, which is the, we think, not good sign. You put up a different sign that says, everyone who walks around the forest understands that we need to preserve it, please don't take the artifacts. But the point is it doesn't mention lots of people are doing this bad thing. Um, he puts both signs up. He actually tags the different pieces of the petrified forest so he can count later how many were taken. And you see a manifold difference when the first sign is used where more people are taking the artifacts than in the case of the second sign. Um, this kind of behavior of um, setting up these sort of descriptive norms where you're describing the bad things that people have done, lots of folks have realized that these things can be used in policy to get people to behave better. What I'm more interested in is this question of, well, what are the representations, right? Like, why is our mind so glitchy that telling us that other people are behaving badly makes us behave more badly ourselves? And I think what we're finding is that this is another funny glitch of the good thing that we have as humans, where we can get out of our own heads and take other people's perspective. But the fact that we can do that means that we're also affected by other people's perspective much more than we tend to think. Um, and it's in these funny contexts, particularly in the context of moral behavior, that I worry about these kinds of cases the most. If we're kind of walking around just ready to suck in other people's ideas and perspective and beliefs, um, if we have such a new mechanism that we don't have a great filter on when we're doing that, then all the kinds of behaviors that we hear about, all the behaviors we see, all the ideas we hear articulated, those things are affecting us um, more than we expect. Um, I can't help but think of, you know, my Facebook feed as I scroll through, you know, before this election coming up where I'm seeing, you know, lots of folks who have similar political perspectives than me, but other folks who think very different things. And I read these and I, you know, from my own perspective, I think these ideas are terrible and they're abhorrent or whatever. But the claim is that what I know about these mechanisms suggest little inklings of this stuff um, might be getting into in ways that I don't expect. And I think we really need to understand these mechanisms better if we're going to um, put a filter on our own minds so that the beliefs and ideas that we have are more based on the facts that we have about the world as opposed to the stuff that other people believe. Um, so there's this question about if I'm really interested in, in humans and what makes us special, why do we need animals to do that? And I, I think the answer is that sometimes we, when we do the study with animals, we get answers that we don't expect, right? Sometimes they're really surprising us. Sometimes we assume that we have abilities that are you know, special and smart and so on, and we dig, particularly when we compare ourselves to animals, we look dumb. Um, or we have capacities that we just assume animals must have because like, you know, obviously they have this, and then you look, and then all of a sudden they don't have it. Um, take this this case uh, in the theory of mind domain that I mentioned, right? Um, everyone had just assumed that if, if you had the ability to think about what some individual could see, that you must have the corresponding ability to think about what some individual can't see, because like, they, they have to be like two sides of the same coin. But as when we started doing these studies that we realized, hang on, you can, you can be very good at making positive predictions about what it means for somebody to see something and not have the ability to make any predictions about what it means for somebody to be ignorant. And I think that set of findings is a really good example of why we need the animals. Like we didn't know that those abilities could dissociate till we happened to find this cool case of a non-human animal who had one part but not the other. Um, in that respect, studying animals isn't about like learning about animals. It's like doing the classic thing that cognitive neuroscientists have been doing like since the beginning of cognitive science, where they're like, you know, where is a patient who has 
ability X, but not ability Y. If we could find such a patient, then we would know that those two processes were separate, right? It'd be even better if we could find a different patient that had ability Y, but not ability X, right? This is the classic logic of double dissociations that launched neuropsychology. It launched cognitive neuroscience and fMRI, where you can dissociate parts of the brain that show that process one capacity, but not the other, and so on. Um, functionally, that's what we're doing with animals. We find cases where they have process X but not process Y, and then we say, wait a minute, this is telling us something about the way those processes work in us. They have to be separate, and we can expect different things about them. Um, but the, the second reason I think it makes sense to study animals is that sometimes they show us that the processing we have is not as clever or as rich or as system two as we once thought. Um, and this is what we've seen in the context of over-imitation. We like to think that so much of our problem solving is this rich causal understanding that we're using the ideas that we see in this very rational way and sort of thinking about costs and benefits and so on. Um, what the work in over-imitation shows us is that we're actually just dumber at solving problems than other animals. We might be more bound to these fast, automatic, and not very smart heuristics like automatically taking on other people's ideas when we're solving problems in a way that other animals don't. Um, if you show chimpanzees a case where somebody is solving a puzzle box in a very inefficient way, they have some mechanism to just completely ignore that. They just solve it on their own. If you show a four-year-old child a case where somebody's solving a puzzle box in an inefficient way, they cannot override the information that they got. The extent to which they use that automatically is so built in that it's going to not just make the child solve the problem the wrong way, it's going to make them unable to reason about the causal structure of that task in future cases. And so this is remarkable. We, we like to think that we're um, less system money than other animals, but in the social domain, particularly when it comes to other people's perspectives and ideas, I think we might be in, in, a, in a funny sense, more system one than animals. Like, we have a, we have a set of um, implicit processes to take on other, peop other people's perspectives that animals don't have. It's, it's not that they don't, it's not that, you know, they're more explicit about it, it's just that they, they can't represent anybody else's perspectives, so they're not messed up by them. Um, but this is a case where I think we've seen why animals are important, right? They tell us that the smart capacities we thought we had might not be as smart as we thought, or there might be some interesting downsides to these smart capacities that we have to understand to really um, to better human behavior and to make sure we're behaving in ways that we're proud of. Yeah, if, if you're the kind of person who's interested in the glitches of human behavior, and you know, I take this perspective contagion as a true glitch of human behavior as something that's messing us up all the time, um, you want to know something about where those glitches came from. You want to know something about how deep those processes are, how easy they're going to be to override, how long they've been in our history, those are going to give you some hints about how to deal with them. Um, and so I think that scholars like Kahneman, like Thaler, like folks who think about the glitches of the human mind, I've found they've been very, very interested in the kind of animal work that we do, in part because the animal work has this real um, important window into where, those, where these glitches come from. If we look in, an, in a capuchin monkey and we find they have the same glitches that we see in humans, and, and we've done this, we've seen the standard classic economic biases that Kahneman and Tversky found in humans 
in capuchin monkeys, things like loss aversion and reference dependence. They just have those biases in spade. That, that tells us something about how those biases work. That tells us those are old biases. They're not built for current economic markets. They're not built for um, systems dealing with money and so on. There's something fundamental about the way we make sense of choices in the world. And if you're gonna attack them and you're gonna try to override them, you have to do it in a way that's honest about the fact that those biases are gonna be way, way, way too deep. If you are somebody who's in, if you're Bob Cialdini and you're interested in the extent to which we get messed up by um, the information we hear that other people are doing, and you learn, actually, that's just us. Chimpanzees, like, they don't fall prey to that. I think you learn something interesting about how those biases work. You're like, wait, this, this is something that we have under the hood that's operating off mechanisms that are not old, that we might be able to harness in a very different way than um, we would if we're solving something like loss aversion and so on. And so what I found is that, you know, the Kahnemans of the world, the Chaldinis of the world, like when, when they hear about the animal work, um, both in cases where animals are similar to humans and in cases where animals are different, I find that they get pretty excited about this stuff. Um, and and it's, they get excited because it's telling them something, not because they care about capuchins or because they care about dogs, they get excited because they care about humans. And now the animal work has allowed us to get some insight into how humans tick, uh, particularly when it comes to their biases. So. When, when folks hear that I'm a psychologist and study animals, they sometimes get confused. They think, why aren't you in a biology department or ecology department and so on? And my answer is always, well, I'm a cognitive psychologist, like, you know, like full stop. Like my original undergrad training was studying mental imagery with Steve Coslin. It was studying memory with Dan Schachter. Like I grew up in the information processing age and my goal is to figure out the flow chart of the mind. I just happen to think that animals are a really good way to do that, um, in part because they let us figure out the, the kinds of ways that parts of the mind dissociate. And I study animals in part because I'm interested in people, but I feel like people are a bad way to study people. Um, I remember even as an undergrad um, working in Dan Schachter's lab and running um, tests of implicit memory. So these are um, ways that you can uh, remember things that are kind of more implicit processes, right? Like I happen to show you a list of words and later I'm having you do a word scramble task. And because you've remembered them, even though I didn't tell you to do so, it's gonna affect the way that you solve those problems. You're gonna solve them faster for words that you saw before. But you don't realize this, nothing's explicit, right? Um, testing human participants on this, and then you know you ask, the problem is human participants have ideas about what the study's about, right? So they're trying to figure it out. Like the whole time they're running the study, they're not just like being a subject in the study or being a participant, they're like trying to figure out the task. And so afterwards you do this implicit memory test and I'm not supposed to know what the test is about you ask them and they're like I think this is a test about implicit memory and you have to throw that subject out and it's just very sad and I, I got to hating the fact that people people have this awareness that they're in a study people have the meta awareness that they're humans and they're constantly trying to figure stuff out people are also really messy because they have culture like they have lots of experiences they've been taught stuff it's really hard to get a human mind that's so pure um, and it's one of the reasons that my closest colleagues at Yale are people like Paul Bloom and Karen Wynn and Frank Kyle, people who study kids, because they have to like get rid of all the experiences that humans have to study humans. They have to say, knock out all the experiences that happened after six months, because that's the only way we can get this like pure window into what the mechanisms of the human mind are. And so uh, to kind of alleviate those concerns of studying humans, that's one of the reasons I've turned to non-human animals, right? Like they just, they don't have meta-awareness about what we're trying to study. They, they're not affected by all the stuff they've learned from other individuals. And so 
they can kind of give you this window into the mind that's like purer than the kind of thing that we can see in human subjects and in some ways less messy than what we can see in human subjects. So in my department, I'm a psychologist, I'm in the developmental psychology program and that's in part because the kinds of questions I look at and, and in some ways the, the logic of the method I use is very similar. Um, people who study human babies and human kids um, try to look at the human organism without certain human uh, learning experiences. Um, I'm kind of doing the same thing. I'm just taking a mind without human unique experiences. We're just kind of getting rid of that stuff and seeing if, if you're a mind that's not built to pick up on language, if you're a mind that's not built to pick up on human culture, how do you do it? Um, and we study kind of two, two such minds. Um, one is one that makes sense for studying the kind of one of the like nature aspects of um, of humans, right? We take the mind that's closest to us phylogenetically, um, but lacks the human unique stuff, and that's turning to non-human primates. Um, and in part, just because they're convenient, we pick a non-human primate like a rhesus monkey, who we can, is you know, small and compact, we can study them. Um, I, I have great uh, respect for colleagues who study chimpanzees, um, who are harder to work with. But um, anything that we learn about all the species in the primate order is going to tell us about the closest branch. Um, to us as humans. And so we try to study um, primates that we can study in a relatively natural environment and that limits what we can do because um, it'd be great to study primates purely in the wild, but then of course they're not as habituated to humans. We can't run experiments, which is what I do. I can't just watch their behavior. I need to be running them in these special sorts of studies. Um, and so we use a, a really unique population of rhesus monkeys that live on an island known as Cayo Santiago. Um, it was set up as a research station uh, since the 1930s, and so that means the monkeys are really habituated to humans, they're used to us hanging around them, um, and that means that even though they're living in this naturalistic setting, we can set them up on little experiments where we show them plays or have them steal from us and so on. Um, and it, it it's, like, it's like all the benefits of um, working in captivity um, with not as many of the drawbacks for the animals because they get to be living in a naturalistic setting, so we love it. Um, and studying rhesus monkeys give us, gives us this nice window into the nature side of things, right? They're phylogenetically pretty close to us, same order of primates, um, and that can tell us something about the stuff that we, the, the way our mind is shaped by the natural stuff, like all the genetics that we get, just being a primate, you have certain cognitive abilities or don't you? Um, but kind of on the nature-nurture balance, um, we also kind of want to get insight into what we as humans get from the nurture side of things. You know, what do we get from the fact that we live in an artifact-rich culture? What do we get from the fact that we hear human language from the day we're born and even before? Um, and to test that, we have to find a different non-human species, not one that's closely related to us, but one that happens to live in these like really human-like environments. And that's what's caused us to turn to domesticated dogs, right? Domesticated dogs are literally growing up in the same environment as a human kid. Like if you were just a, a puppy at the same time you had a baby, they would literally be growing up at the same input for the same amount of time. But the puppy would be doing things that are very different than the human child would be doing four years later. And the question is, given that they have the same input, why? And this is why we turn to dogs. If we see similarities, we can say, wait, maybe these similarities in cognition come from the living in the same environment. Maybe they come from hearing uh, a language-rich environment. Maybe they come from living in this rich artifact culture. When we see differences, we know that just experiencing that input alone can't shape the cognitive abilities we're talking about. So we test um, dogs at the Yale's new Canine Cognition Center. 
Um, we don't have dogs in the center. We have dogs just in New Haven and around Connecticut. Um, uh, the dogs, human guardians, bring them in uh, for testing. Um, it's very fun for the dogs because they get lots of treats and get to you know, cuddle with all my undergrads. And it's fun for their guardians because um, the dogs uh, go through the Yale degree program just like the undergrads do and they get little Yale diplomas and Yale you know, certificates. They get into Paw Beta Kappa and, uh, and the guardians quite love this. Um, so it's, it's, a nice, it's a nice system for everybody. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> so we can bring in the great thing about bringing in dogs from the community is that um, we're testing literally dogs that are living in human environments, right? We know that those are the same environments in New Haven that Paul Bloom's children and Karen Wynn's babies are growing up in. You know, sometimes it's literally the same subjects as the children. And so when we see differences, it can be really powerful. Uh, we are an equal opportunity uh, canine cognition center, which means um, anyone who wants to sign up on our website with their dog can come in. The only dogs we screen for are ones who are either too aggressive to be there and that's just for our staff safety um, or too anxious and that's just because it's you know not fun for the dogs. And we have um, all ages of dogs, which is kind of cool. Um, the canine cognition ends up being one of the few fields where you can study aging in non-human animals. And in most species, it's really hard to get subject numbers to really look at, say, like um, cognitive decline or even developmental studies. Um, there have been some papers published in chimpanzees, but it's always a struggle to get the subject numbers you need to look for those developmental differences. And we have this unique way of doing that with dogs because there are puppies in New Haven and much older dogs in New Haven. So we can really use dogs as an animal model of um, cognitive aging and even cognitive decline, which is kind of cool. So uh, one of the reasons we were interested in, one of the reasons we came to dogs beyond just the fact that they're a good model generally is that we thought dogs would be the perfect test case for whether humans were truly unique in terms of showing this perspective contagion. Um, one thing that any dog owner will tell you is that dogs really care about what you are up to, right? They're constantly watching your behavior. They're constantly paying attention to the cues you give them. Like, they were built over domestication to care about us and to work with us and to cooperate with us. If any non-human species was going to be good, at having mechanisms to like catch our perspectives, it would be dogs. And so when we started the Canine Center, we said, aha, we're gonna prove ourselves wrong that these, this perspective contagion is truly unique to humans. What we're gonna try to do is to see if dogs can do this stuff. And so we've now tested dogs on this over-imitation study. We've presented dogs with a case where um, people are solving a problem in an inefficient way, and we've asked whether that affects them. Uh, we were so sure dogs were gonna show this, um, we went ahead and tested um, non-domesticated canids. So we tested dingoes, assuming, well, the dingoes won't show it for sure, and the dogs will, and we'll have this great paper. Turns out we were right. Dingoes don't show it, of course, because they're not paying attention to human behavior, but it turns out the dogs don't show this either. Um, dogs, when they watch an inefficient solution, are just not affected by it. They figure it out on their own. Um, human children on exactly the same box completely fall apart when they watch somebody do it in an inefficient way. So it turns out even your, your dog is smarter at filtering the bad information that he sees from other agents in the world uh, than you are. I think one of the nice things about the animal cognition work is that um, it, it ends up going back and informing human cognition in some rich ways. Um, we uh, had historically done some work on economic irrationalities in monkeys, I'm trying to see whether monkeys show things like loss aversion and reference dependence and so on. Um, and the main folks that are citing those papers aren't people who study animals, they're people who study human economic biases and behavioral economics and so on. 
um, the findings that we're getting in animals are feeding back in really interesting ways to the theories that humans have about um, how some of these biases work. Um, the same thing has been true in the context of uh, over-imitation in these sorts of studies. It's seeing differences in animals that sometimes um, push people forward in terms of thinking about how to think about human effects. And that happens in the context of things like over-imitation. It also happens in the context of things like even these funny studies on whether or not monkeys understand what others see and know. Um, these are papers that are being cited by experimental philosophers who are trying to understand how knowledge representations um, feed into our moral behaviors. Um, the cool thing is that un using the animals to kind of figure out these dissociations, that we can split these processes apart, those studies are incredibly useful for human psychologists who are trying to figure out how these processes work. When you see that they dissociate in an animal, you can say, wait, now we can go look as well at whether or not these dissociate in a human. And so uh, it ends up launching interesting new work um, in lots of different domains that you might find surprising. Um, so one of the exciting things that's going on in addition to kind of cool science stuff is that I'm starting a new role at Yale. Um, I'm going to be starting up as Yale's new um, head of Silman College. So Yale has a set of residential colleges, um, which are uh, communities on campus of students who live together, participate in the same community, have a same academic dean, and the head of college is kind of like the head of the family. Um, if you use a kind of family analogy, I'm kind of there. And um, to sort of be an intellectual head, to be a social head, uh, an uh, athletic head, which I quite worry about, but we'll see how that goes. Um, and, and so far it's been uh, an incredible privilege, I think. Um, we're, an interest, we're at an interesting time um, in academia with a lot of the things that are happening um, both in our country and on our campuses. Um, and I think it's an exciting time to think about how the science of psychology um, can help us think better about um, how to do better with things like microaggressions on campus, um, how to think better about um, how to share perspectives across relatively big dividing lines. Um, I think there's lots of ways that the science of psychology can help us navigate some of those issues, and the hope is that I can um, infuse a little bit of science into didn't, these discussions. Didn't help. So in five years' time, I think we want to better understand um, if we're on the right track about this puzzle of what makes humans special. Um, you know, the hypothesis right now is what makes humans special is the fact that non-human animals can't get out of their current here and now. They can't get out of the facts of the world. And that means they can't think about counterfactuals. They can't think about the future really well. They can't think about the past really well. Um, they also can't really take others' perspectives in the same way that we can. Um, but as with all these hypotheses, um, we could be wrong. Um, uh, uh, my old colleague at Harvard, Dan Gilbert, once I said that, you know, this is the thing that scientists stake their reputation on. They say, the thing that makes humans unique is X. And then it's sad because then somebody comes around and shows that X isn't true. And then, you know, you staked your reputation on this dumb thing. And so what I would love to be in five years' time is to either know that the X that I've proposed, that uh, humans are the only species that can think in non-factive ways, was wrong, and then that'd be great because we'd be moving on to a different question, um, or to see that so far all the evidence was pretty consistent with that. And I think doing that will give us some important insight 